As we come to the, to the word, uh, let me pray for us. Ask God to, to bless our time as we look at it this morning. Heavenly Father, we are amazed, grateful that you would call us to be your people. That we sit here today as a result of this work that you've done and we join in with people throughout the ages who have gathered and worshipped and look to you to be the one that would inform their lives. And so we do the same today. We ask that the truth and the facts that you have called us to be yours, that you revealed your truth to us, would continue to sink into our lives. That even today there would be this ongoing transformation of our lives, of our hearts, of our minds, that would bring glory to you, that would demonstrate the, the vital and real work of your gospel in each of our lives, that it would grow fruit, it would bear fruit in our relationships with each other, it would bear fruit in our relationships with the world around us, that it would go forth with great power as it's gone into our lives. And so that's our prayer this morning, that you would do what you have promised to do, what you have done up to this point, and we anticipate you continuing to carry out the work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, or 3 rather, Galatians 3. I had the opportunity uh, a few months ago, it's always kind of interesting to go back to a passage, and uh, it was in, in June and July to, to preach from chapter 3 in Galatians, and so I'm kind of picking up on that. I had to kind of go back myself and look through my notes and figure out where we were and where we are today, but we're going we're gonna to pick that one up at the very end of this chapter of chapter 3. As, as Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he is warning them, he is encouraging them to not walk away from the gospel that he had preached even though others had come in and to, to preach a different gospel, which was no gospel, they had come in and said, hey, the, the gospel of Christ is good, but don't leave behind the law. Don't forget these things. You need these just as well. And Paul is warning to say, the minute you begin to add anything to what Christ has done for you, the, begin, the minute you think you can, anything can originate in you that you can bring to the table... Some status that you might have is the minute the gospel begins to become undone in your life. Instead of growing something that's good, actually weeds begin to grow up in your midst. And it begins to undo everything that Christ had done. And it actually nullifies the very work of Christ. It's not just dangerous and damaging. Actually, it's offensive to Christ. And it nullifies his work. And so he's writing to them and encourage them to, to see that. So this morning, let's read. I'm going to read from verse 21 of chapter 3 through the end of the chapter. Uh, I have the opportunity this weekend and in two weeks, we're going to kind of pick this up again. But 21 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So Paul continues his argument to them. He wants them to get this. And what he has done, if I can give a little bit of a backdrop of where we have come in just a couple of minutes here to remind us of the argument that he has built. He says, I want you to look at your own lives. Look at the transformation that takes place. That, that's a mark of the true gospel, that, that the Spirit has come and filled you and there's been real change in your lives. Then he appeals to the Old Testament. He says, look at Abraham and how Abraham was justified. It wasn't by something he did, circumcision. It was by something that he believed in God that he would make him righteous. It wasn't something that he did because circumcision actually followed his belief, his faith that God would make him righteous. So he says, look at Abraham. Then he says, look at the Old Testament. We have a pattern in the Old Testament, and the pattern goes like this. There's a pattern of promise that God gave to Abraham, and the promise is a promise to bless all the nations, and through Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. So it was a promise that came, and then comes the law. Then comes the stipulations that follow the promise, but that doesn't invalidate the promise. It doesn't make the promise go away, but rather it's a temporary period of time in which God says the promise is, or the law is conditional. It's something that is necessary, but it follows the promise. The promise is most important. What God has said he will do, not what you can do, but what he will do. And anticipating both the promise and the law anticipates a fulfillment or completion that one would come who would fulfill the promise, who would complete the law, that being Christ. And so Paul says, look at the the layout, the historical layout of the Old Testament promise Law anticipating Christ who would come. Christ fulfills both of those. They're both completed as he shows up. The promise is completed as well as the law. And he says, what's the purpose of the law then? It was temporary, yes. What was its function? Its function is to lead us to Christ. It's to prepare our hearts for Christ. And he says, what it does, it actually increases sin. It actually opens our eyes to sin. It enhances sin in our lives so that we see nothing we can do will earn any kind of standing before God. That it is absolutely impossible. The weight is too much for anyone to bear. And so the law only increases that reality and it shows and reveals our need for Christ. And so that's where we've come to this point. He's looked to the Old Testament and now he has said, this is where we find ourselves. And in verse 23 through the end of this chapter, What's interesting as Paul continues to argue this case is we have a shift in some of the language, a shift in the picture that Paul brings to them. He says, we still have language of the law, but he says, instead of appealing to the Old Testament, he's drawing on some things that would be familiar to them. And he wants to transition from legal language to language of the family. He wants to move them in the gospel from just talking about the law to talking about what it, what to the high point of where the gospel takes us. The reality that it brings us into that the law never could. And this high point is into a family room, into a familiar relationship 
with God. And so the language and the whole imagery shifts at this point. And that's where Paul has been bringing them. He says, you can't get here without the work of Christ. He says, I don't want you to miss this. And so the blessing that comes in the gospel, the high point of the gospel that he wants them to see, that we move through law, we move into this picture of the gospel that we are children of God. That there's two blessings that flow out of this gospel, this truth of what Christ has done. And one is sonship. That we are sons and daughters of God. But the second one is unity. And he wants to hit on both of these. But he wants to hit unity first. And then he's going to get the sonship. And so today we're going to look at this unity, this picture of oneness that comes out of this picture of sonship. And then next time in two weeks when I get to do this, we'll do the first seven verses of chapter 4, which identifies and looks at and unpacks this picture of what it really means to be a child of God. But as Paul writes to them, unity is on the front edge of what he wants to hit. Because what's taken place in the church is they've been divided. They're being torn apart by legalism. They're being torn apart by status that each one of them would have or try to appeal to. That's something that they would have. And we will, we'll see it in this passage, the kind of status that they were appealing to that would place one against the other and one over the other. That would attempt to elevate each other in God's eyes among the others to the detriment of the others. So Paul, as he writes, he wants them to get this. And so he's sharpening the picture of the gospel. He wants to see what God does, the high point of the gospel, and what it produces, what it brings in contrast to legalism and what it produces. And the point is this this morning, if I can boil it down to these few words, that it's in the gospel alone, that the gospel alone provides the soil in which unity really grows, that we find the reality of unity as God's people grows in the gospel of Christ alone and what he has done. Because Paul boils it all down to that. He wants to give them a picture, give them a paradigm for understanding the connectedness that we have to God vertically, by virtue of that horizontally to each other, and in relation to that, how that affects the way we should live in relationship to each other. So the gospel provides the right soil, the right foundation for unity, true unity in the church that's there to speak in their setting. But he first starts with the law. And he says, I want you to see a picture. The law prepares us for Christ, for this unity. And there's two images that he gives to us of the law that we want to unpack. But then we want to ask the question about this, this new setting that the gospel brings us into. We're going to look at the source of the unity we have. We're going to look at the description that he gives us. Then we're going to look at the, the application that Paul draws on their lives, which we can apply as well. Let's first look at the law that he, he identifies here in verses 23 and 24. You'll note, and I've mentioned this, that we're in the past he's drawing in the Old Testament. He's now kind of drawing on images that they would know. As he speaks to them about the law, he says, there's two images I want you to see. As you think about the law and its work in the life of a sinner and its work in leading us to faith in Christ, two images. One is that of a prison guard, and the second one is that of a guardian. And we'll kind of look at each one of those to each other. First of all, he says now in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. We see this picture of the imprisoning function. And if you're doing your Bible setting, you're making observations, some language should jump out to you. Language like before faith came and until something happened. And it gives us a hint to remind us that the, the function of the law is temporary. 
that the law itself has a temporary function that's to lead one to Christ. And this function is one of imprisoning, of guarding, of protecting, of constricting there. And so this, this faith, waiting until faith, until faith came, till Christ would be revealed, is an imprisoning kind of function of the law. Now, the faith here, lest we think it's some sort of ethereal, subjective kind of impression or feeling, this faith is the same thing as, as Christ. Faith come until Christ came, until the object of faith showed up in history or in the life of a person to realize that need. And so until faith came, we were held captive. The law functioned in this way to imprison and to lead us to faith until it would be revealed in our lives, in history or in our lives. So faith is seen and connected with what Christ has done up in, in history as he shows up. And so what Paul wants him to see, this temporary function of the law, as it operated in history, remember it had a time-bound kind of period of time from Sinai to Calvary, it says, so it, op- it operates, it functions in the life of a sinner. It does something in us, it leads us to Christ. And it imprisons us, one of those works, one of those functions that it brings, it prisons us, and it means to him in. It says, held us captive under the law, imprisoned us. And if you picture a, a fish in a net, it's the picture of that. It's, it's being imprisoned and kept in and not able to escape. You can't get out, and that's what the law does. It keeps one from escaping. It's this prison guard that keeps you from getting out. One commentator put it this way, the law prevents the sinner from escaping to a futile and elusive freedom. And so what the law does in a sinner's life, it it prevents one from getting out of this idea, somehow thinking that there's this pure freedom out there. It's, It's rather elusive. It's futile. It doesn't exist. And what Paul is saying and the implication for us is that the law is real. Its implication on the life of a sinner is real. That we can never escape the reality that there are moral absolutes in the world in which we live. It's built into the very fabric of our consciousness, the very fabric of our relationships and the world around us. It binds us and it serves its purpose, the law. And it keeps us from living outside of its protection as much as we would like to say there are no laws, there are no moral absolutes. They are real and they bind every person. And the person who wants to say they don't exist. And it's just something that we fabricate in our society and human mind has somehow done that. He wants to live outside of those laws, those moral absolutes. They will find themselves only breaking themselves against the bars that hold them in that they will break themselves against the very law they say does not exist. So the one who denies that God's moral law exists will break themselves against it. At the same time, the one who thinks that they can fulfill the moral law will lead in one and two places. They will find themselves either in pride, trying to fulfill what God has accomplished, thinking they can fulfill this law, these expectations, these standards, or despair, realizing they can't even live up to their own standards, not to mention the standards that God would bring. And so this moral law is a real law in the universe. It's seen explicitly in Scripture. We find it implicitly in our hearts. And it leads the sinner ultimately to see and to find the need of Christ. And of course, one of two things could be the outcome. One could be a a kind of callousness that can come from that where we don't care any longer. But the one who is broken by it, who finds themselves under the weight of this law, broken the bars of this imprisonment, 
They're led to Christ, and they find the only place to come is there. And so this inescapable moral conscience that we have, we've been created in the image of God, has been woven into the fabric of our lives, is real, and it leads us to Christ. Probably for many of us in our stories, in our lives, it We've recognized that. We've felt it. We've seen it. There's an oughtness in the world around us. There's shoulds and should nots that we know are real. As we see those, we understand that they're real. It leads us to go, I have broken those and I need help. And so whether we feel it rightly or not, the pangs of awareness of having broken this law and its effects upon us are real and it leads us and we're desirous to find some sort of covering, some sort of forgiveness, some sort of way to assuage the effects of having broken this law. And so Paul says, this is what the law does. It imprisons to lead to faith ultimately in Christ. It is not pleasant, but it is necessary. It is necessary to lead us to Christ, though it is not sufficient to save And so this is a picture that he gives us. But then he goes on to give us another image, an image of a guardian. It leads us to Christ. So then in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And so he moves from the prison guard to the guardian, to the tutor, to the disciplinarian. And the the picture was a common one for them in Roman times that there would be a child is being raised. Assigned to him would be this guardian, this custodian, and the, the goal or the point of this custodian was to raise them, to take them, to make them grow up to be an adult, to, to bring them to a point of being of age. And the emphasis here is discipline. It might have some educational aspects, but the emphasis is discipline. This is not a, a pleasant picture. The guardian, the disciplinarian, is to use whatever means necessary to grow you up and to discipline you to, to be able to come of age. And so it's a very common picture for them to bring them of age and the emphasis here it's necessary to bring them to make them a full member of the household and so the law serves this kind of function it serves as a guardian in order that we might be justified by faith it provides this disciplinary action not pleasant but necessary to bring us to faith and so what paul says is the law has operated in these two ways the prison guard did not let us get out and the guardian, the disciplinarian that, that enacts whatever it needs to do to move us in this direction towards justification, ultimately towards Christ. And in verse 25, he says, But now that faith has come, now that we see Christ, now we understand what he has done, that it's about what he has accomplished has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We, we don't need this. We've been brought of age. We are of age. We are brought into the full status of, of being members of this family now. We don't need this role as a guardian. Now, that's not the same thing as to say that we don't need the law. That the law still doesn't serve a function in the life of the Christian. Paul's going to appeal to that in chapters 5 and 6. But its function as a guardian, its, its function as a disciplinarian that would lead us, this direction is no longer necessary as we have come of age. And so these are the two pictures that Paul uses to, to prepare them, to help them to see this is what the law has done in your lives as, it, as it's brought you to Christ. But then he, he gets to the high point here in verse 26. And in it we see the high point of the gospel. We see what he wants them to see is that the law is, or that the gospel is, is less about legal, legal language. It's more about the language of the family. And he says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are sons were baptized into Christ and put on Christ. He says, can you see this? I want you to understand what the gospel is. 
It's about being a child of God that you've been brought into the family now. It's not about trying to get in or earn your keep. You are in. You are a son or daughter of God because of Christ. That's what faith, that's where he takes you. That's where it is. And so we have a a personal, profoundly corporate picture of the gospel that he has. The role of the law has ended in this way. It's been fulfilled and completed. and It's brought us to this end, into the family, from language of the courtroom to now to the language of the family room. And it's the high point of Paul's argument to them. He wants them to get in the most vibrant and personal terms. He wants to see God. He wants them to see God as their father for those who have had faith in Christ. It's a much different feeling. Instead of having to justify yourself to find yourself in, to be a child of God, now the basis of our relationship with God and with each other has a completely different orientation. It's now we're in. Now, how do we live as a result of that reality, that new understanding of what the gospel has accomplished? And that's what Paul wants them to get. And remember, he uses this because he wants them to see that what's taken place in terms of their own fracturing and division that's taken place in their lives, he wants them to understand this, the gospel, because it will deal with those issues within the church, within their relationships. And so he he states plainly this reality and the two blessings that flow out of this. One is sonship. I mentioned we'll talk about in two weeks, but this is unity and oneness because he wants to address the issues that are taking place immediately within them. And he applies it to their lives. This great picture of having, of being sons and daughters of God. And it's helpful for us, I think, to to look at the status. And if you'll turn to chapter 5 verses, I want to look at a couple of verses here to give us a picture of what's taking place in the church, okay? Some of the language as is described, 5 verse 15, Paul writes, as he's, he's kind of getting on him, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Can you imagine a setting that's described by that biting, devouring, consuming each other in the relationships, what's legalism, this one-upsmanship is taking place. It's growing these kinds of things. Verse 20, in the list of works of the flesh, he writes to them, look at these lists. There's a bunch here, idolatry, sorcery, but then look at this list, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of those things as it relates to relationships. And then look at the end of the chapter in verse 26. Let us not become conceited. Indeed, that's exactly what legalism does. Provoking one another, envying one another because of our status, because of some status that we think that we've attained. That's exactly where it takes us to pride. Wanting what what each other has, wishing that our status were somehow different. We divide the church into all these lines based upon these things. And Paul says that's not where the gospel of the fatherhood of God takes us. So we see that a system built upon comparison and competition will naturally grow these kinds of things. Envy, strife, division, biting, devouring each other. And it's only the gospel of Christ's atonement rather than human attainment that will grow unity. It's the gospel of Christ's atonement rather than our attainment that will grow this kind of unity. It's in that context that it deals with the division that's there. And so Paul gives us a picture. He wants to identify and locate the source of our unity. He wants to then give us a picture of what our unity, where it flows from, and then he wants to apply it to their setting and to ours. 
first of all, the ground or the, the foundation of the unity that we have, the source of it comes in our fatherhood, that Christ is our father, that God is our father. In verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. He wants them to see that the source of all this, again, back to the family room, is God is father. That we, through faith in Christ, find ourselves in the family from slave to child of God that we are in. Now, what's interesting, as I studied this week, I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, okay? So when I find enough, some other guys that kind of agree with this, it's an important statement that some of our English versions don't quite pick up on. And that is the order of the words in the phrase in verse 26. ESV has it, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. In the Greek, that phrase, the very first word, which emphasizes the point of that verse is all. All of you are sons of God through faith in Christ. All of you, and you can picture Paul, right? He wants to get that through their heads. All of you. And he's looking and he's speaking to a group that has been fractured by all kinds of lines. Free, slave, Jew, Greek, male, female. female. You can find all kinds of lines that could be drawn. And he says, all of you are sons of God through Christ, through faith in Christ. Like a father, right? Speaking to his kids that are bickering. Buying says, listen, you're all children. You're in the family. Don't you get it? And so the emphasis there is on all. He wants him to hear. All of you are in the same boat. All of you are in the same family. As a result of what God has done and nothing that you have done. I want you to get that. And if you were speaking to us today, you would say the same. No matter what might divide us or distinguish us from one for another, culturally, socioeconomically, ethnically, gender-wise, any of those things, they don't matter before him. It doesn't matter if we like the Jayhawks or the Wildcats or the Tigers or what we like to wear, what music we like to listen to, what clothes we have. Any of those things don't matter. But he says that if you've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in what he has accomplished on the cross in history and taking on our sin upon himself, being the curse for us, the eternal son of God that became sin, whatever else we might be doesn't matter. Whatever other distinguishing marks we might have is irrelevant in God's eyes. What counts as a child of God is that you're his. And so he says the source flows out of this picture as God is Father. Those in Christ are sons and daughters of him. And he says, I want you to see that picture. All of you are sons and daughters. And that's the, he's going to build on that in chapter 4, more of the sonship. But the all is the picture. He says all of you are together in this. But then he goes on to give us a picture of this, this description of of what this unity is for in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he draws in this image of baptism. He says, yeah, you're children of God, you're sons through faith, for it's, it's through and in this baptism. So he gives them this picture. He wants them to, to see that. And I think it's helpful for us to, to acknowledge, I think that the, the baptism here he's referring to, it's, it's not the water baptism of a believer. It's rather the baptism that that water baptism points towards. And he says, those who have been baptized into Christ, those who have been unified with him, those who have been converted, who have experienced a conversion, whose spirit has come and regenerated their minds and their hearts, those in whom are united with Christ in that real way, okay, 
Water baptism points towards that reality, be it before or after that reality. It's still real. He says, those who have been baptized have found yourself in him, been clothed in him, have put on Christ. So he wants them to see this baptism identifies the people of God. It's the marker, okay? It's not whether you've been circumcised or not. It's, whether, it's not whether you're Jew or Greek or free or slave or male or female. That's not the marker. The marker is being baptized, unified with Christ. That's the new community that, that you are a part of with God as Father, Christ as our elder brother that he wants them to see. And so Paul narrows this understanding of baptism. And he says, a variety of things you could say about baptism, but he wants them to see this. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. The imagery is putting on clothing. It's, it's you've been clothed in him. It's that, that, that what you're wearing now is Christ. And so you have put him, if you've been baptized, you're part of the family, you have God as your father, you've been clothed in him. So this picture, and we read in the opening call to worship in Isaiah 61, this picture of being clothed in righteousness, clothed in what God would provide for us, is looking at what Christ would do for us. And so this description of baptism is important, and it pulls on this picture of being clothed in Christ. Now what's interesting in, in this, it's helpful you read this, I read in the, that behind this text, back to the imagery of the guardian, is an interesting cultural phenomenon, something that took place, that I think Paul is pulling on and then giving them a picture they could draw on. And the picture is this, that this child, as he's brought to age, uh, to being of age by the guardian, by the disciplinarian, that, that that transition marker from being underage to being of age in a full status in the household was marked with the change of clothing. That is, that child was transitioned into the full rights and status of being a member of the household, that their clothing would change. They would be giving a different, given a different toga that, that marked them now of having been of age. They said, remember that and look that as they have come of age, they're clothed differently now that we have come into the family, so we are clothed differently. The clothing marks us, it identifies us. It identifies us together. We've been clothed, marked with Christ and what he has done for us. And that identifies the one who's have come of age. I've had the opportunity, which is just one of my favorite things in my life, was, was to coach uh, junior high football for Veritas. Again, I'm, I'm just as dangerous as a coach. I know just enough to be dangerous, but I got to coach junior high players. Now, there's something that's just so much fun about junior hires, and that is many of them have never played before. And so you get a chance to coach these guys who've never played football before. And I just, it's a great experience, but one of the things you have to do before you don't, they don't just show up and get a, a uniform. Okay. You, they show up. There's, there's some, Training, some discipline that has to go in before they get to get a uniform, a couple of weeks of, of preparation. But then there's this kind of almost a ceremonial period as, as they get their uniforms. And most of them you have to show them how to put them on. You have to show where the pads go, how the helmet put on, how to lock it in, how to, how to do the, you know, the, the, the shoulder pads. You show them where they go. You have to help to dress them really in this uniform that marks. And there's kind of this ceremonial aspect as they become a football player, as they put on the uniform, as you help them transition. And you can just see it. They get that uniform on. They go, now I'm in. 
Now I'm a player. They can barely walk in it, let alone run, let alone really hit each other in the uniform. But that marks them. It identifies them. Now they're on the team. Now they're ready. They've been clothed in the uniform. Whether they can run fast or slow, whether they're big or small, whether they know what even to do with the football, they're on the team. What Christ or what Paul is saying here is if you've been baptized you in Christ, you've been clothed with Christ, you are in. You need to see this picture. It's no longer about what you are underneath or what might distinguish you apart from the others. When you have the uniform on, when you have Christ, you are his. You're part of the family. And all who are the children of God are now clothed and identified with Christ. So he says the source is our sonship. The description is our baptism of being clothed in Christ. But then he applies it in the most astounding ways. If we could actually get this picture as he, as he goes on in verse 20, 28. He goes on to describe this. He says, there is. And it's almost like a therefore. In light of these things, in light of the source, in light of being clothed in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male, no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. He applies it to them in the most clear terms. Now, why did he use those sets of opposites? Certainly dealing with the status of ethnicity, certainly dealing with the issues of socioeconomic status, and certainly dealing with gender issues that would be there. And I think the, the best way to understand the way he's addressing, why he's addressing those particular issues is because those are the things that were dividing the church. Those were the things that people were looking to, to build and to garner their status in the church before God. Jew or Greek, and certainly in the Jewish faith, Judaism would enhance each one of those, would would recognize a man over a woman, would recognize a free over a slave, would recognize a Jew over a Greek in terms of, of their status before God, just merely in those facts. A free male Jew would have a status that's higher than anyone else in that. And Paul says that's not right as we understand the Gospels, we understand what's going on here that, that, that none of these things matter. He says essentially the same thing later on in chapter 5. He says, neither circumcision nor un, un, under, uncircumcision counts for anything. Faith working itself out in love. And as he writes to them, he says, be careful not to draw lines, to import ideas that aren't truly driven by the gospel, distinguishing marks or characteristics based upon any of these things apart from Christ. And of course, as he writes to them, he wants them to see it, wants them to get it. This is all of you, no matter what your distinguishing mark might be, whatever status you might find yourself in, it doesn't matter. He wants to get them, but we can see certainly throughout all time that these marks as well have have divided people, certainly humanity, and divided can divide the church, that ethnicity can divide, that race can divide, that socioeconomic status can divide, that gender can divide the way the church operates and the way we see each other. And he's saying, left to these facts alone, they don't matter. They're irrelevant in God's eyes. He says, I want you to see that. Paul's point is there's no real difference based upon these. And why is that? Why is there no real difference? It's because they're all clothed in Christ. They have the uniform on. Okay? It doesn't matter what you are underneath before God. It's 
Are you clothed in Christ? When God looks at us, he doesn't see specifically exactly who we are. The distinguishing marks, he sees Christ. He finds these pleased with him. As that law has done its work to bring us to that point, to robe us in Christ, to realize that, that we had nothing to cover ourselves, that he brings us to the point of, of finding that Christ was the one that will cover us, that nothing else really matters before God. And it's in this soil that unity and living out this unity really grows. Understanding it doesn't matter whether we look at each other, what we see, what our culture might tell us about differences. It's in this soil of understanding our, the level playing field before God that we're all on the team, we're all the same in Christ, that we're all dressed and robed in Christ, that we can really learn what it means to be unified, to be one in Christ, so that, and to live out of that reality doesn't mean that there's not some distinctions. It just means that, that before God, that it, it, it doesn't matter what those distinctions might be. Providentially, God has pushed, put us in a particular race, put us in a certain status. He's placed us in a gender, and he says, this is who you are. I've made you like this, and I've put you there for a purpose. But what most counts isn't where you are or what you might have or not have. What really counts is who, what, what uniform you have on. So real unity comes, certainly, as we come to understand these distinctions, but move beyond them to see as God sees them. So as Paul writes to them, he says, here's the gospel. Here's the base of it. The law brings us to this point of, of age to be a part of the family. The source is this, this sonship that we are sons and daughters of God. It says this picture is baptism. We're united with Christ. And the application is there are no distinctions that matter whatsoever if Christ is the one that identifies us, that marks us with him. So practically, what do we do? What effect does this truth have upon us? There's three things I want to conclude with um, that, that this helps us as we live and relate to each other. First of all, the truth that we're sons and daughters of God grounds us and grounds us in our true identity. It helps us understand me, helps us understand us and our true identity. The question of who we really are is not answered by any of those distinguishing marks, free, slave, Greek, Jew, male, female. Ultimately, who we really are is identified and marked by being Christ, by being God's, a child of God, that that is the most important identifying mark about us, of each one of us, that we are his. And that that vertical relationship has direct implications horizontally. That the fact that I am his and we are his affects the way we see and the way we relate to one another on a horizontal level. It's the fact, it's true, that we are not alone. We're not an only child been brought into a family and called to be his along with each other. And that helps us. It's an immovable, unchangeable fact that we are connected to each other, whether we like it or not. We are connected to each other in Christ, whether we even happen to like each other or not. Whether we happen to know each other or not, there's a real connection that we have in Christ that's why you can cross the globe and run into a person who knows Christ, have an instantaneous bond and connection with that person. Because there's a bond that you have in Christ that cannot be explained in any other way. And so it grounds us in who we are. And I don't know whether we realize this truth or not this morning, this week. I've been trying to kind of wrap my, my mind and my heart around this idea that we are not a social club. 
We don't just happen to have a common interest so we show up on a Sunday morning, but we are bound by this truth that we are God's children, that he is our father, and that we are his, and as a result, we have a connection with each other in and through that for the very purpose of displaying his glory and this grace and this amazing gospel in our lives that called us to be his. So the first implication is it identifies us, it grounds us vertically and horizontally. Secondly, it's a truth that sets us free from the endless treadmill of comparison and competition. Again, we have eyes to see and we look around and go, I wish I was like that, I wish I had that, I wish I dressed like that, I wish any of those things that we might say that would distinguish us. And that we can get off the treadmill, we don't have to think for any reason at all that we need to, to, to change, to, to, change to, to take on a different status to appeal to God or to please him as he sees Christ, as he sees the uniform on us, he's pleased with us. The Bible study I lead on on Friday mornings, we're we're studying through this book, and there's one guy in particular, and he loves to be the list keeper, and he says, I like to keep lists. And his point is, I love to keep lists and, and check boxes and see how other people are doing. And we laugh about that, it's a joke, but the beauty of being in Christ is that we don't have to keep lists anymore. I don't have to compare myself to anybody else. I don't have to be in competition to wonder, oh, wow, did I read my Bible today? Did I have a quiet time? Have I prayed? Have I done these things? So I don't have to check boxes if I'm in Christ. And certainly it flows out of that reality, but we don't have to check boxes. We can rest. We can be free from being on this treadmill of trying to kind of maintain our status or to kind of one-up somebody else. Paul writes the first part of five for freedom, Christ has set us free. There's a freedom we can have just to be his son, to be his daughter. And that has implications throughout the way we live and the way we see each other and the way we relate to one another. Finally, probably a lot of other implications, but the truth empowers us, enables us to love. As our identity is grounded in Christ, grounded in who we are as we understand that we're free to get off the treadmill of comparison we can really love. Here's the, here's the fact. I haven't set up this point, but I want to say it now. The fact is, the goal is not unity. The goal is not unity. Unity is a fact. Unity is something that is true. And Paul says the same thing as that. He says that you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is real. It, 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 it is a true fact that we must live out of. So we don't pursue unity. We live out the unity we already have in Christ. And as we understand this truth of the gospel, it enables us to love. The goal is to love, is to love God, it's to love each other, it's to love those outside ourselves, to love those who are different from ourselves. It's to love. And in unity, as we understand that we are unified, we are one, we learn how to do that better. Conclude with this verse. Paul writes in verse 13, related to this topic, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't let your freedom, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, what the gospel does ultimately, the outcome of this truth is that it enables us truly to be lovers, not list makers, not wondering where we are or whose we are, but it enables us to, once those things are in place, can love God. We can love each other. We can love the world around us. And we can understand what that means to obey the law. Because he says, 
He says something. I'm trying to find it here. <laughs> um, you don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as Paul writes to them, he wants to say, get this picture. Understand this. Understand that, that in faith and through faith, as God brings us through the law, by the law, into a full age with full status as sons and daughters, that we're identified by him. That as being baptized in, in, in him, that we're clothed in Christ. And I love this picture that as he puts his uniform on us, we don't have to worry about what's underneath the distinguishing marks of us. As we're in Christ, the gospel transforms us and we're enabled to live this out, this truth, and to love each other, and to love a world that desperately needs to see this picture in action. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that this is, this is a fact, that we sit here today not isolated, not floating around without any connection. We sit here today with a real transcendent connection to you and to each other with saints throughout the ages and throughout this world and in this room today and our desire is to live out of that fact. Would you remind us today of this identity that's grounded in being your children and be able to, to, to walk in a way that, that lives out, that, that we are clothed in Christ. And as we look at each other and those around us to, to see as you see, this is something that you must do in us. Because left to ourselves, we will just build our own cases before you and above each other. So please do that in our lives. We have many needs as your people, and so I present them to you now. I, I pray for Noel Peters, um, Paul and Carla's daughter-in-law. She deals with breast cancer and You'd be with her, with Brad Kaler. We pray that you would continue to heal him and his body. Pray for Bill and Karen as they're traveling this weekend. You keep them safe and many other needs that we have as a church. I present them to you as well. We're grateful as well for the, the good things that, that have taken place, the things we give you thanks for Mark and Lori Lang, their granddaughter being born this last week. We pray for the good news, Lindsay Clements and this Results coming back being um, not malignant and not cancer. So we're thankful for those things. We rejoice together as your people, and we are bound together no matter what is going on in our lives. And so we um, come united as, as yours today. Father, would you truly enable us uh, to learn what it means to love the world around us? Desperately needs to see this. This truth that you are at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.